Amen. Please be seated. There is an insert in your bulletin that has one of the passages that we will look at. We'll start there. If you're visiting, you might think this sermon is reactionary because Friday we had a decision from our Supreme Court legalizing same-sex marriage. But in reality, this is part of a series that I planned some time ago. It was at the request of one of our elders, Joel Thomas, that I do a series at some point between my two expositional series. I finished Second Corinthians and planned to begin Isaiah, but I had some weeks where I would be off in July, and this several months ago presented itself as a good slot for a special series. I don't do many of those. As you know, if you've been here long, we walk through the Bible. That's uh, the preaching approach that we take and will continue to take, but it's a good opportunity with four weeks there presented to present uh, something like this. And he made the specific suggestion that I consider this kind of uh, topical series where I would address some of the current issues of the day. Uh, and I didn't have anything that came to my mind right away. There's so many possibilities, I thought. And so in May, when I was riding my bike across Missouri with Pastor Brian, I asked him, what do you think are the four most pressing issues for our people in the church, you know, for the strengthening of the body, things we're facing, you're facing, and uh, as we discussed it, I, it boiled down to these four that I presented uh, two already, and today the third. We, we agreed that the first thing that the people of God have to be shored up concerning, because there's so much pressure in culture about it, is the authority of the Word of God. It's, it's inspiration by God's Spirit, uh, the fact that it's completely infallible, reliable, it's without error, it's authoritative as a result. And so we have to see everything through the lens of Scripture. So that's the basis for all of it. We could talk about cultural issues, but unless the people of God are equipped with the right lenses, we can't interpret those issues well. We can't speak to them as God would have us speak. And even among Christians, there's confusion. You know, we get uh, away from the Word, and sort of like Eve in the garden, when Satan said, did God actually say you shouldn't eat of the tree? And she got God's Word mixed up and messed up, and it led to sin, ultimately death, but sin and misery. And so it's important for us to start with the basis that we have to have the Word of God as our authority, see through that lens, interpret everything in light of it, rather than see the Bible through cultural lenses. The second thing that Brian and I agreed, really facing you, is our exclusive claim, our belief that the Bible teaches that Jesus is the only way for a sinful man to be right with God. We have to have faith in him, in his finished work, his taking our place on the cross, taking the punishment that we deserve so that we could be right with God. That's the only way of salvation. It's not one of many ways. It's the only way. And we're not loving to anybody if we don't tell them the truth, especially if we've been given this truth to share with others. So Jesus is the only way. It's the second of these sermons. The last two are related. One has to do with marriage and God's teaching on his design for it. And then connected is sexuality. Those two go together. We're not afraid to talk about this stuff in church. We should be talking about it in your households, with your children, with each other, that we have our bearings right because we're getting so many messages. Because if you don't talk about it, you know and I know that everybody's iPhone's talking about it, their iPad's talking about it, their computer's talking about it. Everybody's talking to your kids about it but you. And the church needs to do its best to equip each other, encourage one another with what the Bible says about these things. Marriage and sexuality. Some will overlap. Some of these topics will overlap today in next week, but I want to focus on one and then the other. I didn't know when we 
prayerfully considered this series, that this particular sermon would come two days after the Supreme Court legislated, I said that carefully, legislated a law. Nine unelected officials, none of which are Bible-believing evangelicals, decided to interpret something that's not even in our Constitution for the rest of us. That's the truth. That's what happened, and I think it is God's providence that we would come to this place in this sermon because what we want to do is be refocused upon God's Word. That part of this message, the first third, would be the same if we heard the sermon in 1715, if we heard it in 1815, if we heard it in 1915, and it should be the same if you hear it in 2015. But the reason why you have a live preacher up here rather than us listening to Martin Lloyd-Jones tapes is because we're in a different situation. And so what the current situation is and its impact and then how we ought to respond, those are things we have to be studying and talking about in God's church because these are new days for the church. It's unlike other things that we have undergone, and I know people will say that, but you know me long enough to know I'm not an alarmist. I'm usually telling you to chill out, don't freak out. And I still want you to chill out and don't freak out. But I want you to be prepared because things will be different for the church going forward. I'm well confident of that. I want to begin by reading two passages. I have the longer one in your, on your insert. Let me start with a passage that comes before that in Genesis 1. The book of Genesis is the book of beginnings. It forms not only the beginning of the Bible, but the very foundation of God's creation, his intentions for creation, his calling upon creation, his foundations. It's all about establishing his will early on. Yes, it records the fall of man. It records God's answer to the fall of man in Jesus, who will come to crush the head of the serpent. But the book of Genesis is foundationally of utmost importance. For this reason, what we find in it uh, is not a, a grouping of topics that don't matter. We're talking about the most basic fundamental, essential building blocks of human society and God's call upon the whole earth, let alone mankind. So we begin with Genesis 1. I'll read just uh, two verses and then go to the passage that is on your insert. I will refer to several passages along the way. Uh, I will try not to talk too fast. That's difficult for me, but there's lots to be said this morning, and it's important. Genesis 1, 26 and 27 Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now the passage that you have before you, it's, it's, this expands upon this creation of God. Genesis two eighteen through 25. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds, the heavens, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit 
or suitable for him. So the Lord God caused the deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Let's bow as I lead us in prayer. Lord God, it is probably easy for your church in America to become discouraged. Lord, please root us again in your word. Give us special wisdom as to navigating this epic we find ourselves in providentially by your sovereign will. And Lord, for me, I pray that you would give me humility. I pray that you would give me a sense of personal brokenness about my unworthiness to speak in any such terms. I pray that nothing that I say that is not in accord with your word would be remembered by a person here today. But Lord, I do pray that you would please, Lord, make me to fear you more than I fear man. pray this for the sake of Christ. Amen not a surprise to you that we live in one of the most rapidly changing times in our country's history. I've talked to older members uh, who have not seen this kind of rapid change in their 80 plus years. Rapid changes are happening in areas that come into conflict with uh, convictions of Bible-believing Christians. The country that we live in was largely founded on the basis of religious freedom. I'm not saying at all that it was a Christian country, but people came here to escape tyranny which would not allow them to practice their religion. Marriage is a divine institution and has been understood as such, even by our governing authorities in the past. It even predates our Constitution. It's assumed in the Constitution. Yet now, religious liberty is at serious risk, and you can believe that. In 2015, we live in a land where the highest court has decided the definition of marriage should be changed in the court of civil law. The movement that brought about the legalization of same-sex marriage is rooted in the push to legitimize homosexuality as a virtuous way of life. This tension has been going on for some time. It prompted one pastor to say, as I quoted here on your insert, we are in the midst of an unprecedented moral and theological conversation in our country. Many professing Christians and self-identifying evangelicals now view homosexuality as good and virtuous, essentially discrediting 2,000 years of church history in the text of God's Word. How is this possible? What is the right response to those who identify as Christians yet believe homosexuality to be a biblically and morally acceptable practice? Some of this we'll cover next week, but this sets the stage. Remarkably, there are some who would still say they are evangelicals, meaning they believe the Bible is God's inspired word and that Jesus is the way of salvation, but yet they're taking the side of culture on this particular issue. That's what's confusing the matter all the more, especially for people in the church. 
two volumes from professing evangelicals, Matthew Vine's God and the Gay Christian and Ken Wilson's A Letter to My Congregation. They have been widely circulated, and they argue for acceptance of homosexuality in same-sex marriage. They do interesting things with the biblical text, but they still say they believe it. Since culture has spoken to some degree, civil authorities have legalized same-sex marriage. It hasn't taken root everywhere yet, but it will. It's going to follow. And there are a number of people who say they believe in the Bible yet are siding with culture. Let's first, before we do anything else, go to the scriptures for our guidance and for God's design, for God's definition, if you will. The Bible's teaching about marriage. There's far more than I'll say here, but I want to give us the foundation and show how it runs as a thread through all of biblical revelation, how it forms the basis for the ethic of Jesus, because many will say, well, Jesus doesn't address this issue. He addresses it everywhere that he speaks about God's design for marriage. He also speaks without having to say against other possibilities. He, he takes on Moses's teaching, and he doesn't come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. And we'll see how all of it runs together as an important foundational and essential thread to understanding mankind. The foundation for the marital union, the description of marriage, is found in Genesis. Genesis 1, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then, Genesis 2, the passage before you, the first verse. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Literally, it means a helper suitable for him. A helper to complement him. Complementarity that would be manifested physically, but it's not only physical. We learn this from this text and others. God creates man and woman to complement one another. The physical complementarity pictures the practical complementarity uh, that they have. That is the roles that God calls them to play. As well as a spiritual complement that they give to one another. This plays out throughout all of Scripture. But making them a one-flesh union is very key to understanding God's design for marriage. The male-female union bears all the marks of a designed unity. If you look at verse 21 in the passage before us, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. You see, Woman is distinguished from the beasts. Man is distinguished from the beasts. God creates man and woman in his own image, and they complement one another. And after seeing all the animals, the man is given woman as a complement from himself. Verse 23, then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Uh, made to complement, made to be the beginnings of all society, Uh, the foundation of society, the foundations of what God would do over the face of the earth. Verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. A physical complementarity and a complement spiritually. They go together. This is the design God has between a man and between a woman. This is why he made us this way. This description of the marital union is the basis for the rest of biblical revelation. This isn't a side doctrine, a side teaching. It's absolutely 
foundational. In fact, we know that God uh, uses the marriage picture continually to show his relationship with his people. It comes up again, over and over and over again. Uh, It's not, again, a fringe teaching. It's basic teaching. In fact, one of the reasons God sent the flood during Noah's day is because there was a corruption that happened within marital unions. It's not the only reason he brought the flood, but we often pass over this reality when we go right from Genesis into other passages that speak about marriage. But what about Genesis 6? When we are told, when man began to multiply in the face of the earth, in the land, the face of the land, and the daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit will not abide forever with him, for he is flesh. His days will be 120 years. And it goes on to explain a freakish thing that was going on before the time of the flood, but it was on the basis of these marital unions. Point being is, men were taking women as they chose, and this was, they were marrying them. Uh, this is a misuse of marriage, but marriage is still pictured here, even in this corruption, as a man and a woman, and God judges this the way they do it. At the very least, there was an epidemic of ungodly marriages that was going on. At worst, there was some effort to corrupt the messianic seed. Whatever be the case, as you read the Old Testament, you'll see God refer to the sacredness and sanctity of marriage over and over again. In fact, one of the reasons the prophet Malachi is prophesying against Israel is because of the marital unfaithfulness that was going on in among the people of God. Listen to what Malachi says to Israel in this day, the church in the Old Testament. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it uh, with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? The response, because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. He's talking about a man and a woman, and he's picturing what they were doing with regard to unfaithfulness. This picture that comes in Genesis 1 and 2, works its way out throughout all of the Bible. It's always addressed this way. Interesting, something else Malachi notes about the marital union. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? Sin affects everything. And when Malachi writes, it's not the same time as Genesis 2. Now sin has come in. And every one of our marital relationships are messed up because of it. Backing up, every one of us We're all messed up because of it. As it relates to sexuality, we're messed up because of it. People talk about, do you have a choice or not? Listen, in a sense, everybody has to make a choice for godliness because we're so broken, we're so so, uh, corrupted with sin that we could choose any manner of things. We have to go to God's word for it, and we need his spirit to help us with it. Some have more difficulty with it than others, but we all struggle in this area especially. It's not like anybody is exempt. And anything I say should not be construed as saying, Someone's holy and someone's not. This is about God's design and his calling for it and his ideal for it that as we pursue it by his grace and we struggle for it, God blesses and causes flourishing among humans that gives him glory. That's the driving motive or reason for us searching this out as we're searching it out. And we see in Malachi's day these struggling marriages. And he reminds them, marriage is supposed is the spirit involved. There's a one flesh union and it's special, even this side of the fall. It's still God's way of mirroring his relationship with his people. 
God regularly uses marital terms to picture this relationship. In fact, in the book of Hosea, it, the whole book of Hosea is an allegory. It's a marital allegory, and it's harsh when you hear it. In the first part, he goes to, uh, God go, the first chapter of Hosea, he goes to the prophet and says, When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. What he's doing, he's setting up an actual marriage between a prophet, a man, and a woman to picture what the relationship between God and Israel was like. With God represented by Hosea, faithful, and Israel, the people of God, represented by Gomer, who's this Homer, who's this woman who is unfaithful. This picture gives us a marriage as, as the allegory for God and his church. God consistently uses this picture. Did God actually say marriage is between one man and one woman? Yes, profoundly. This is what the Bible teaches. This is what the Bible displays. Even for all the abuses you see of it, this is the standard. This is the design. So when we come to the time of Jesus, it should not surprise us that when the Pharisees try to trip him up, among many things, they like to trip him up with the issue of marriage and divorce. So they go to Jesus and try to trip him up. And listen to what Jesus says. The Pharisees came up to him, this is Matthew 19, and tested him by saying, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Listen to Jesus' answer. Where does he draw this? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Don't you guys know the most basic truth of all the Bible? Have you not read this? I mean, there couldn't be anything more basic than what Moses writes. That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus goes on. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate, Jesus says. Now, it's unfair for proponents of same-sex marriage to say that Jesus never addressed homosexuality. Yes, he did. He just repeated what had always been understood and thereby affirming what God's design is and thereby excluding any other alteration to it. John, in the book of John, we have Jesus aligning himself with the teachings of Moses. The beginning of Matthew, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He simply means that the ethics of the law of Moses are still in place. Uh, they don't change. Uh, he came to fulfill them in that he kept them perfectly, qualifying himself to be our representative, to pay for our sins because we couldn't do it any longer. But he doesn't say, now that I have lived a pure life, you can go live an impure one. That's not what he means by fulfilling the law. I fulfilled it so you can go do it. Now, he does mean that when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus the righteous. And we're going to sin. That's not the point here. But we're struggling against sin. We're recognizing it's sin. We're not given to it. We're not celebrating it. We're not saying it's okay. Jesus believed the word of God through Moses, which was very clear about marriage and sexuality. The apostles of Jesus, trained by Jesus, guided by Christ's spirit while penning scripture, also kept the same marriage and sexuality ethic that has been from the beginning. Listen to what Paul writes in this beautiful picture. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, 
his body and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Paul uses the marriage that God pictures as a picture of Christ and the church. There are no biblical examples of marriage between anyone but a man and a woman. Now, to be sure, marriage is abused in Scripture. We see examples of this. It's not commanded to be abused, but we see people living those examples. We saw or refer to Malachi. There are other passages about unfaithfulness. And they're, they're always depicted for what they are, against God's design. When the patriarchs marry more than one wife, that's always disaster. That is a sinful thing that they did. It was in the construct and according to the the, the way things were done in the day, but it was never sanctioned by God. It was uh, by the hardness of man's heart that it was allowed for a time. And you saw what happened when Solomon did it. It always ends badly, but it's still a man and a woman, and they recognize that as a marriage, as wrong as polygamy is. Our confessional standard states the matter biblically and very helpfully. In our confession, statement of what our church believes, the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 24, the first section of five sections. Marriage is to be between one man and one woman. Neither is it lawful for any man to have more than one wife, nor for any woman to have more than one husband at the same time. That's, that's a clear explanation of what the Bible teaches about marriage. David Platt says it wonderfully when he says, Marriage is a living portrait drawn by a divine painter showing Christ's love on the canvas of human culture. Okay, this is what the Bible says, but what does the Bible say about same-sex marriage? Well, the fact is that same-sex marriage is nowhere mentioned. That's a statement in itself. There are no examples of same-sex marriage in Scripture. But the Bible does very clearly address homosexuality really extensively. It's a common mantra by proponents of legitimizing homosexual practice that the Bible doesn't really say that much about it. Well, the first depiction of homosexual practice happens in Genesis 19, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. God judges those cities after a long period of time, we understand. Uh, it was epitomized by this sin of homosexuality, but there's a lot more going on there for sure. It had come to the end of God's patience in this particular place. Which, by the way, the normalization of this is usually the end of God's patience. In Genesis 19, we read of this city, and then in Jude being destroyed. And then Jude, in the New Testament, confirms for us why it was destroyed. Let there be no mistake. It's not because they weren't hospitable. It says in Jude 7, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Well, back to the books of Moses. In the Old Testament, there's still great clarity given to us. You remember that Israel had been rescued from Egypt out of slavery. 
now they're going to go and take the land of Canaan. The Canaanites who lived there descended from the line of Ham, and they were particularly wicked. Uh, If you listed out the things they did, it ranged from child sacrifice to every sexual device you can imagine. Uh, Everything was there in Canaan. It's well known the world over. And it had come time for the Canaanites to be judged. It's not that the Israelites were were righteous. It's that God's patience had worn with Canaan and his providence worked together for Israel now to take that land. But he, in protection of his people, gave his law a reflection of his character and some particulars about what they would be encountering, would have to look out for. And this is why we read in Leviticus 18 this warning to the people of God. And you shall not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife and so make yourself unclean with her. You shall not give any of your children to offer them to Molech. And so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Then it says later in Leviticus 20, If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. The biblical sexual ethic gives us a picture of God's design for marriage and sexuality clearly at the very beginning of the Bible, and it carries throughout. Uh, There's no other kind of marriage mentioned. Uh, The Bible's not short on sexual ethics. Uh, However, outside the marital union of a man and a woman, no sexual practice is prescribed or allowed. This is why when Paul has to speak to the Corinthians who had come from Roman pagan culture and probably had all manner of things we know by our study, the things that were happening at Corinth, Paul writes in that first letter, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. Now, I understand there's much more to this passage, and it gives us all this great comfort in the grace of God that if we repent, if we acknowledge our sins, we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us. But don't miss uh, the categorization that God places on these sins and their importance. And the reason why this sin in particular is such an issue is because it strikes at fundamental Uh, the fundamental basis for humanity. That's why it becomes more uh, impacting in its exercise. Kevin DeYoung uh, wrote an excellent book on this topic and an excellent post this week was placed on the Gospel Coalition site. He quotes uh, Dermot McCulloch, who is a church historian uh, and a gay man who left the church over the issue of homosexuality. And he, this McCulloch, is at least honest about what the Bible says and why he left. He said, this is an issue of biblical authority. Back to the first sermon. Despite much well-intentioned theological fancy footwork, to the contrary, it's difficult to see the Bible as expressing anything else but disapproval of homosexual activity, let alone having any conception of homosexual identity. The only alternatives are either to cleave to patterns of life and assumptions set out in the Bible, or say that in this, as in much else, the Bible is simply wrong. So, the answer to the question, did God actually say marriage is between one man and one woman, even the gay church historian who left the church would say yes. That's what the Bible says. That brings us to the second point. What of this rapid shift concerning marriage and its impact? Before the Supreme Court rendered its decision two days ago, which legalized same-sex marriage, the storm had been brewing in earnest for the past 10 years and really the past 80 years, if you go back to when humanism starts to become the real religion of people at large. 
especially those who drive, uh, you might say, the consensus. But if you just look at the last 10 years, in 1996, a poll suggests that 68% of the population were against same-sex marriage. 27% were for. That's just less than 10 years ago. Then in 2008, 56% of the population were against same-sex marriage. 40% were for. In 2015, a poll taken recently, 37% of the population against same-sex marriage, 60% for. That's an incredible shift in a very short period of time. The shift really started, though, far longer before that, much further before that, uh, when absolute truth and the belief in biblical truth or Christian truth, uh, that conviction started to fade decades ago. And there was a remnant that kept things moral, but they started to fall away with each decade that passed. Uh, the fruit of this has only bloomed in rather sudden terms. You know, when you plant vegetables in your garden, it takes a long time for them to get big and green, and it's like it seems like overnight, all of a sudden, there's a vegetable there, and it's ripe. That's kind of where we are, and it's ripe. It's been coming, though, for a long time. Truth was replaced with a cultural consensus or an opinion among the people who talk the loudest. Truth was replaced with human feelings. It's very arbitrary. Now, I want to share with you something that Francis Schaeffer wrote 35 years ago. It's amazing what he predicts when he notes the replacement of truth with humanism, which is nothing more than the trust in human wisdom to guide and direct us. Listen to what Schaeffer wrote. So humanism is the absolute certain result if we choose this other final reality, that is instead of biblical truth, and say that it is what it is. You must realize that when we speak of man being the measure of all things under the humanist label, the first thing is that man has only knowledge from himself. That is, being, in, being finite, limited, very faulty in his observation of many things, yet nevertheless has no possible source of knowledge except what man, beginning from himself, can find out from his own observation. Specifically, in this view, there's no place for any knowledge from God. It's all going to come from us. But it is not only that man must start from himself in the area of knowledge and learning, but any value system must come arbitrarily from man himself by arbitrary choice. What we all decide based on what? And who talks the loudest, right? Or who has the biggest influence? Schaefer goes on. More frightening still, in our country, at our own moment in history, which is 1982, is the fact that any basis of law then becomes arbitrary. Merely certain people making decisions as to what is for the good of society at the given moment. Starting familiar. This is in 1982, a time when most people would say politically it was on a conservative upswing. Schaefer closes this section. Now this is the real reason for the breakdown in morals in our country. It's the real reason for the breakdown in values in our country. And it is the reason that our Supreme Court now functions so thoroughly upon the fact of arbitrary law. They have no basis for law that is fixed, therefore, like the young person who decides to live hedonistically upon their own chosen arbitrary values, society is now doing the same thing legally. Certain few people, in this case five, come together and decide what they arbitrarily believe is for the good of society in the given moment, and that becomes law. That's 35 years ago. In epitomizing this shift and surely influencing public position, is our president's evolving view. I will assume, 
because I can't see a man's motivation that he was telling the truth in 2008 when he spoke with conviction multiple times on the campaign trail. And I quote, I believe that marriage is the union between a man and a woman. Now, for me as a Christian, it is also a sacred union. God is in the mix. Constant position throughout 2008 in the campaign. In 2011, he said, I have been to this point unwilling to sign on to same-sex marriage primarily because of my understandings of the traditional definitions of marriage, but also think that attitudes evolve, including mine. 2012. I've just concluded that for me personally, it is important for me to go ahead and affirm that I think same-sex couples should be able to get married. And then Friday after the Supreme Court ruled to legalize same-sex marriage. Today, we can say in no uncertain terms that we have made our union a little more perfect. Even if the polls are wrong and there are more folks who oppose the notion of same-sex marriage, there is an unwillingness to act upon it actively and legislatively. Further, many Christians, while disagreeing, simply say, and I heard this from many, even in our own congregation, why does it really matter? How will it really impact us? It's wrong, but so what? Uh, How does it affect me? What is the impact of this rapid shift concerning marriage? That's a, that's a, a fair question, and we ought to think about it. We shouldn't freak out about any of what may happen, because God is sovereign, Jesus is king. But what will happen to Christians in the church in the days to come? This is unprecedented. This isn't the same as Roe v. Wade. This is something that's more, uh, that's bad, but this is even more integral. Uh, It's law now about a basic building block of life that pervades every one of our experiences. So I'll give you some estimations, and I want to be clear. These are estimations. I'm not a prophet, and I'm not even a good predictor. These are just estimations. First of all, on the social level, these are some things that will probably happen at some point, in some way. The call to reinterpret Scripture will multiply, even in churches. It'll get louder from those who say they believe the Bible, even. Did God actually say or mean this, people will ask. That will grow in volume. The church, Christians, will become increasingly marginalized for teaching in opposition to same-sex marriage, homosexual practice, and sexual impurity in general. We talk about sexual ethics at all will be marginalized. It will be more difficult for people who claim biblical convictions to get elected to office or to take on significant roles in the civil magistrate at all. It'll become more tough. Kansas is behind this a bit, and that's good. I'm glad I live here. But it's catching up. This will be true about judges also. Our current Supreme Court, made up of nine individuals, doesn't have one Bible-believing evangelical, despite polls saying the general population has 30% of it being evangelical. How many proponents of biblical marriage do you think will be appointed to the Supreme Court and approved now? How about teachers that need approval from state and national education boards? The National Education Board celebrated the decision by changing their logo to the rainbow as soon as this happened. This is not an unbiased organization. How will Christian teachers who have biblical worldviews be approved to teach in this setting? Christians wishing to serve as foster parents could be marginalized more and more. They already are. I know we went through the classes. I know what they asked us, and I knew what they were getting at. So the people doing the most work in a most needed area will be marginalized out of that area. You watch how it happens. The mocking will increase in the media. Virtually all the media outlets will be celebrating wildly on the Internet uh, this, the rest of this week and so on. 
I read one really insightful post that noted how it used to be that Christians got mocked for being holier than thou. You know, that's how it's interpreted. We're, we preach certain morals, so therefore we think we're better than everyone, and we're really hypocrites, which is true. We're hypocritical. But that's not the crime anymore. The crime now will not be moral superiority. The crime will be moral inferiority because we are not accepting of all people, and you're not letting love win. We could see protests. Churches will be pressured to endorse same-sex marriages. Refusal to perform said weddings in our buildings by our pastors will increase the public scrutiny and the mocking. I don't know when it'll happen. It might be my successor that deals with it more, but it's going to happen at this point, at this level, at this state, at this stage. That's just socially. What about legally? And I know these overlap. But legally, the comments made by the various Supreme Court justices after the legalization of same-sex marriage happened on Friday were not comforting. Uh, One insightful writer says, that there will be a revisiting of legal notions of freedom of speech and association as well as a challenge to constitutional protections for religious freedom. Free speech and religious freedom are both both in jeopardy at this point. If the Supreme Court can rule on something that isn't in the Constitution, imagine what it will do with something that is. Here's some of the dissenters and how they are concerned with what this means for us legally. Clarence Thomas said, had the majority allowed the definition of marriage to be left to the political process as the Constitution requires, the people could have considered the religious liberty implications of deviating from the traditional definition as part of their deliberative process. Instead, the majority's decision short-circuits that process, the deliberative process, where you might vote or talk about it, with potentially ruinous consequences for religious liberty. John Roberts, hard questions arise when people of faith exercise religion in ways that may be seen in conflict with the new right to same-sex marriage. When, for example, a religious college provides married student housing only to opposite-sex married couples, for, or a religious adoption agency declines to place children with same-sex married couples. Indeed, our own Solicitor General candidly acknowledged that the tax exemptions of some religious institutions would be in question if they opposed same-sex marriage. Samuel Alito. The majority attempts toward the end of its opinion to reassure those who oppose same-sex marriage that their rights of conscience will be protected. We will soon see whether this proves to be true. I assume that those who cling to old beliefs will be able to whisper their thoughts in the recesses of their homes. But if they repeat those views in public, they will risk being labeled as bigots and treated as such by governments, employers, and schools. During the oral arguments last month before the Supreme Court, Justice Alito asked the Solicitor General, who is arguing same-sex couples have the constitutional right to marry, If the Bob Jones University ruling, which was over racism, discrimination, would result in the loss of tax-exempt status for any religious school that opposed same-sex marriage, the Solicitor General responded, it's certainly going to be an issue. It's time to wake up. There's little doubt that these and similar questions will soon be before the court, and unfortunately, people of faith can take no comfort in the treatment that they will receive from the majority today, as Samuel Alito says. Virtually all legal pundits see the very important separation of church and state 
tax-exempt status for the church is coming to an end. If the church's teaching on marriage and sexuality is at odds with the legal ruling of the United States, revocation of tax-exempt status is likely. Uh, One wonders the extent of freedom of speech even under this new law. Will it be determined as hate speech? Could we eventually see our pastors and teachers gagged or arrested for speaking biblical truth? Christian schools could likely lose state accreditation for their stand on biblical marriage and sexuality. What does this mean? Well, there's financial implications, too. I only mentioned social and legal. If tax-exempt status is revoked, just what would that do in our church? That would mean hundreds of thousands of dollars in taxes that would have to go out. But it won't only affect the church, as it means tens of thousands of dollars being paid in that way, but it would put a heavy burden on church budgets, which are already tight, as you know. It would also mean the end of the charitable donation deduction, which you get for giving to the church, so that will certainly take away there. Christian schools would come under even more severe duress for reasons mentioned. Parachurch ministries, like missionaries and people that depend on the giving of individuals already members and giving to their churches, they'll struggle even more. Now, I would assume that people here are giving and would give whether they got a deduction or not. What will happen societally? What does this mean for our culture on a whole? Well, there's two major things. First, it will increase misery. Uh, Sin always leads to misery. There's celebration, but there will be compounded misery. Same-sex marriage will not increase happiness. It will rather multiply confusion. It will multiply abuse and damage. Rob Dreher wrote a piece, and he quoted a homosexual activist, a woman who suggested that gay marriage won't just change normal marriage, but it'll do so for the good. And and listen to the agenda here. She says, the dirty little secret about gay marriage, most gay couples are not monogamous. We have come to accept lately we desperately need something to make the drooping institution of heterosexual marriage seem vibrant again. That gay marriage has something to teach us, she says. That gay couples provide a model for marriages that are much more egalitarian and less burdened by the old gender roles that are weighing marriage down these days. So a compounding of sin is sure to come. The Creator designed us. The Creator knows what's best for us. But the creation is trying to know better. The creation is trying to be God. And that always ends badly. Because God judges sin. That's the other thing that will happen. There will be judgment. Uh, God brings judgment upon societal sin. It could be in small ways, many small ways. It could be in a calamitous swoop. But we make no mistake, God will bring judgment. In fact, if we are technical, we could say that this particular kind of sin and its normalization is usually an indicator of a culture already under judgment. Colossians 3, 5, and 8 says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In the book of Isaiah, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. But I want you to turn to Romans chapter 1 for a moment. Romans chapter 1 deserves a hearing, and I'll expound on this a bit more next week. I'll say little here. I'll just let it speak for itself. Romans chapter 1, starting at verse 18. I want you to listen closely. Think back to the Schaefer quote earlier about what happens when uh, human beings make the creator or uh, make the creator subservient to the creation. 
Humanism is essentially just that, believing the creature over the creator. Romans 1, 18 through 28 tells us about a culture under judgment, and then you do the math. It says in Romans 1, 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. I mean, the truth is there, but they suppress it. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. They know there's a God. Verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So their turning away from God sends them down a road of judgment. Verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things and rainbows. I added that. Verse 24, Therefore God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, that's man, who is blessed forever. For this reason. Notice this is for these things. Because of this, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men, likewise, gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a, base, to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. He's not given up his church. He's not given up his people. It's dark time. It's a time of judgment. But he's placed us here so that the light of the gospel can be seen and people can be saved. What's the response? I have several. I want to ask you for a little bit of leeway been here 18 years. I know most of you a long time. Don't be offended by what I say. If you are, talk to Joel. It was all his idea that I did this sermon. I love you enough to lay my life down for you. I would do it in a second. Even at loss of my own family, I would do it. So know why I say what I say. First, the church cannot back down concerning the preaching of the gospel and the whole counsel of God. Ignoring or twisting God's word is what got us into this mess. There must always be a remnant of righteous proclamation of the word. The gospel has to be clear every day and every week from this place. The preaching of the gospel is what God uses to convert sinners and sanctify the saints. You will be strengthened by that message and you will carry it everywhere you go. The sanctification of the saints and the church is the only way the culture can be impacted. No matter how you think the church and the culture interact, recognize that a sanctified church is good for everybody. The preaching of the word in God's church is what staves off ultimate judgment. This is why Paul says to Timothy in a desperate time, a similarly desperate time, 
He says to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort, and complete with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Of particular importance, I think, will be the equipping of members with a strong and clear biblical understanding of marriage. Equipping our members with a strong and biblical teaching about suffering and about marginalization. Jesus knew both of these things, and so will we. That's the first thing the church must do. There's a second thing. I think the church must, in a very practical level, prepare itself financially to be stable in difficult days that are coming. The cost of running a ministry will go up if tax-exempt status is revoked. If the responsibil- or it is the responsibility of church leadership and membership to make preparations for this possibility now. For us, particularly, it means paying off what we owe. Uh, This isn't a ploy, by the way, to get you to give more. It's just a realistic assessment of the future and an alerting of our need to really work toward being as financially free as possible. It does mean we may have to be sacrificial in our giving. There are many ways I know personally I could divert uh, beyond a tithe to what would be an important effort to place us in this spot. I think you all know, and it's sad to see, as you drive by a prominent place that used to be a local church, that now it's a government building. Now, I understand that there are particular reasons for this, but we never want to see this place become that. The stability of the church is important for a very practical reason. For the first point, the preaching would go forward in strength. It would go forward if we lost all this, don't get me wrong. But there's a certain presence that is important And we could see it in history. There has to also be a place for the burned out, for the disillusioned, for the broken victims of a godless culture to go for gospel salve. So what if you've got a great house, if the hurting sinner can't come to this place? What are we building? When the sin runs its course, where will the wounded go? The church has to prepare, as one author says, for sexual revolution refugees. Like that poor woman who met Jesus at the well who was with her fifth man who wasn't her husband. She thought that she could keep drinking from human water and she would be satisfied, but she needed the living water. Where will that well be? We'll need to be strong so that we can be a safe haven for the discarded. So the damaged, the injured, the abused can come for the gospel. Here's the final thing I think we have to be realistic about. The church has to double down its discipleship efforts. That is the maturing of the saints in our midst. And I want to say that's especially true as we train our children. It's not enough to teach our children to survive. It's that disciples are made to be used of God to see impact and change actually happen. But it has to start at this level. It has to start with our marriage. One of the most frustrating things for the last few days was how much of a moral voice Christians had and how pathetic we are in our marriages. 
how much unbiblical divorce is just happening in evangelical churches all over, and everybody looks the other way. They don't wrestle with it. How pathetic it is that we sit in a pew right now and mad at our spouse because of some dumb fight we had. We want to speak to marriage, but we can't even get along with the person God's placed us with and made us one flesh. We've got to be realistic about our marriages first so we can speak to what marriage should look like. Not imperfection. In fact, it'll model gospel forgiveness. It'll model brokenness about what our marriages are like, how hard it is. But it's actually extending that forgiveness that seems so difficult for Christians. But here is what is reality. We have to be realistic about the impact of the state's endorsement on same-sex marriage and how that relates to other state institutions. Public textbooks already have been leaning more and more in a direction to celebrate these things they call diversity. But now they'll have to present, they'll have to present this full balance. They'll have to. So, your kids from K to 8th grade will have eight to 9,000 hours of seat time in that place. You won't be there. The church won't be there. And they'll hire less teachers that uphold that as time goes on. Yes, the church has to be faithful to catechize and train children biblically. But it cannot compete, nor can you, with 9,000 hours of seat time in prime time. All I'm asking for is that we as a church would have reasoned discussions among ourselves about removing our covenant children from such places. Can we use our energies to find biblical, affordable solutions? Can you who no longer have children, can you help us pay for this? Can it be possible if we all put our money together that we could help a solution so that everybody, I don't care if it's a school we have or it's a homeschool co-op or what it is, but 8,000 hours, just please don't give me any other response but to say, yeah, you know what, that is a lot of hours. I can't offset that in my home. It may be free, but don't be fooled. The cost is massive. Kids in public schools will be increasingly exposed to ungodly marriage practices and views, sinful sexual ethics, and it won't just be a circumstance of being around unbelievers. It'll be part of the curriculum. Lots been said here. It's heavy. I know... It's tough. It's tough to talk openly about these things. I've been in Kansas for, I lived here three years before I moved here, so it's 20-some years I've seen the way these springs go. And there's nothing like a Kansas storm. You could be out in the open field and it's bright and sunny, and you know within five minutes all of a sudden the sky is black, hail's coming down, wind's happening, it seems like a tornado's going to come. I mean, it's just something about Midwest Kansas storms that are unlike others. And you find yourself out there in the field, and it's dangerous, and it comes upon you quick. I feel like, to some degree, that's exactly where we are. But we're in the storm now. The storm's upon us, and now it's going to blow. It's dangerous. And you have to find uh, shelter in one hand, but not shelter for the sake of forever burying yourself. But So you can weather this storm as it goes on, and, and we can be looked to to help rebuild whatever is left after it's over. That's what our calling is. That's what God will do through the church, faithful. God will use us to restore that which is broken down in his time. But he also uses us now to preserve things. I'll close with the statement that our, our stated clerk, Elroy Taylor, said uh, as representative of our position 
as a church. The Supreme Court of the United States has issued a 5-4 to four ruling legalizing same-sex marriage. The Office of the Stated Clerk of the Presbyterian Church in America has received numerous inquiries regarding the position of the PCA on this issue. The PCA, like other evangelical, conservative, orthodox, and traditional Christians from many denominations, believes that from creation God ordained the marriage covenant to be a bond only between one man and one woman. That understanding is what the church has always believed, taught, and confessed. It is based upon the teachings of the Holy Scriptures and is clearly stated in the doctrinal standards of the PCA. Over the last 2,000 years, changing cultures and secular legal perspectives have differed on significant occasions from that of Christians and the church because the church bases her ethical and moral positions on timeless truths divinely revealed in the Bible. The ancient and undivided church disagreed when abortion and infanticide practices that were acceptable in Roman culture and legal under Roman law. In 1973, the Supreme Court of the United States legalized abortion. Though abortion became legal, we cannot regard it to be moral. Though same-sex marriage is now legal, the PCA, like many others, does not regard it to be in keeping with God's intentions for marriage. We hope that the recent Supreme Court ruling does not become the occasion for limiting the religious and free speech rights of believers and churches who, like others for thousands of years, sincerely believe in traditional marriage. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, may any word that I have spoken that is not according to your eternal word May everybody forget it, because it doesn't, it's not worth anything. But that which is according to your word, I pray that you would use to change us, to transform us, to drive us to Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. I thank you for your extended patience. I told the first service that you would be getting the unabridged version. Uh, but it is time for us to focus on the Lord's Supper and the gospel as it is presented.